the truth a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published this May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertperlmb.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, the number of new cases remains high. We've seen days with almost 300,000 new cases and over 2,000 deaths. These numbers seemed unimaginable several months ago when our nation thought the worst of the pandemic was over. But as a consequence of what's happened recently, we've reached 675,000 people having died, more than from the Spanish flu, making this the deadliest pandemic in the history of the United States. 675,000 deaths means that one in every 500 Americans has now died from COVID-19, a shocking statistic. Currently, one in four U.S. hospitals now report at least 95% occupancy, up from one in five a month ago. The only good news relative to infections, hospitalizations, and deaths is that some of the states that saw the worst problems a month ago are starting to improve. And this pattern of localized spikes followed by amelioration is one that has repeated itself again and again, both in the United States and globally. Unfortunately, we also know that infection rates are what is called a leading indicator, with deaths a lagging indicator. As such, we can expect daily mortality to stay high for several weeks, even after the number of new infections drops significantly. At present, the elderly continues to die at a higher rate than those who are younger, with one in 35 people age 85 or older having succumbed, while only one in 780 people age 40 to 64 have died. For this reason, the FDA this week approved a third booster shot for the Pfizer vaccine for people age 65 and up. They also approved it for persons with multiple chronic illnesses and individuals at risk due to their jobs or where they live at least six months after the previous second dose. This would include healthcare workers, teachers, and grocery store employees. The FDA scientific advisory group concluded there was not enough evidence for younger, healthier people to recommend a third dose for this group. And at least so far, the FDA is following this guidance, which differs from the direction that President Biden announced earlier this month. The figure of the scientists based on the data they reviewed was that the immune response in younger, healthy individuals is stronger and able to provide adequate protection against severe illness, hospitalization, and death, even eight months and longer after full vaccination. In contrast, the CDC's scientific committee 
provided a different set of recommendations. They did include those age 65 and older, but they did not include younger, healthier people, such as healthcare workers, teachers, and grocery store workers. The director of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, overturned those recommendations, something that very rarely has happened. She felt that leaving tens of millions of Americans in limbo, uncertain which of two contrasting recommendations they should follow was not the best approach for our nation. The World Health Organization chief continues to urge the United States not to begin booster administration until people across the world have had their first dose. This is a classic case of competing priorities at the national and global level and balancing the dangers of today against potentially worse ones in the future. In response, President Biden at the United States General Assembly in their virtual COVID-19 summit announced that the US will purchase 500 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine and donate them to developing countries. Distribution will be accomplished through COVAX, the not-for-profit multinational organization that was created through the WHO for this exact purpose. In total, the US has now committed to donating 1.1 billion doses. Pfizer said that it would deliver this vaccine by September of 2022. The commitment by the president is a reasonable compromise. For elected officials, their highest responsibility is to avoid their own citizens dying, while leaders of global organizations take responsibility for the lives of everyone, regardless of where in the world they might live. But at the same time, by not vaccinating the world, wealthy countries risk a mutant evolving elsewhere that could come ashore and undo immunity from the currently available vaccines. As such, the United States' priority is both maximizing vaccination for our citizens and maximizing vaccination for people around the globe. One of the most problematic parts of the current Delta surge is how it is currently impacting people under the age of 65. You may remember early in the pandemic, it was those over 65 who were suffering almost all of the severe consequences and dying at a very disproportional rate to their percentage in the total American populace. Even with over half of the population vaccinated, deaths among people 55 and under are as high as they had been at the peak of the pandemic when no one had immunity. Had the current Delta variant existed then, it's likely that the number of deaths would have been twice as high. And the ratio of deaths in the elderly to younger individuals has tilted progressively downward, even with the breakthrough infections happening in the elderly and their immunity waning. Jeremy, the data on the efficacy and safety of the current vaccines to me seems so strong, and yet the resistance to being vaccinated remains high among the unvaccinated. What do you make of this? And most importantly, what can we do to overcome the hesitancy? 
Robbie, in a lot of ways, vaccine hesitancy has morphed into vaccine resistance. As you and I have discussed before, I feel like this has shifted into more of a symbolic resistance against what many on both sides of the aisle view as government overreach. You have some on the conservative side of the aisle who have been frustrated with what they view as condescension and coercion by the government. They view many of the government's actions over the handling of the pandemic as unconstitutional and unethical. And this story may not have gotten as much press as the conservatives that are resisting it, but there is also increasing frustration in minority communities as well. Black Lives Matter activists in New York are now calling out and protesting against city leadership over what they believe to be racist vaccination requirements. More than 70% of Black Americans between 18 and 44 in New York have not gotten the vaccine. And according to the BLM co-founder of the Greater New York chapter, Hawk Newsom, quote, we are not anti-vaxxers, some of us are vaccinated. It's an individual choice. No one should be forced to put something in their body. He followed up with, it's not going to be white men in suits on Wall Street who are going to get stopped. There is such hypocrisy in this thing. They are protesting the mandates that they feel are being used to exclude Black Americans from certain aspects of society and the economy, calling the vaccine requirements cover for the city's racist ways and a form of discrimination. Robbie, again, I know you and I have differing opinions on some of this, but I think the restrictions and mandates, along with confusing messaging that seems almost like it is attacking the unvaccinated, is having the opposite of the desired effect. My thoughts on how to combat vaccine hesitancy are as follows. We need the government to be honest, upfront, and try very hard to not be as confusing about both the vaccines and the virus. We need the media to try to stop using scare tactics, and we need the messaging to stop demonizing those who are vaccine hesitant or even vaccine resistant. It's only entrenching them. I'm genuinely concerned that the way things are going now, it's going to end up leading to violence. We need to be open and honest about everything going on and focus on uniting everyone of every race, religion, political ideology, etc., and reach out with easy-to-understand messaging and really focus on stopping with coercion. Robbie, what can we learn from the experience in other countries about the effectiveness of current vaccines against the Delta variant? Jerry, for people who are skeptical of the U.S. data, they can look at research recently published from England by the U.K.'s Office for National Statistics. In the first half of 2021, there were 640 deaths among those who had received two shots and 50,000 deaths amongst those who had not. And among those who died after being vaccinated, their average age was 84, with more than 75% of them very vulnerable from multiple chronic diseases and compromised immune systems. Overall, among people who were vaccinated, COVID-19 accounted for less than 1% of deaths from all causes. While for those who were unvaccinated, COVID-19 was responsible for 37% of all deaths. Similarly, a study from Germany showed that vaccines reduced hospitalization among those 60 years and older by 94%, and they diminished the risk of death by 91%. You know, six months ago, the U.S. was far ahead of European nations in vaccination rates. Today, countries like Great Britain, France, and Italy have surpassed the United States. Robbie, we heard from several listeners who are increasingly concerned about the growing divide between those who are vaccinated and those who are not. As the president pushes harder for vaccine mandates, what are we learning about the two sides? Jeremy, I believe that saving lives from COVID-19 should be an issue of science rather than a politically contentious one. 
But as you've pointed out, it's not. In a survey by Axios of over 1,000 Americans conducted last month, 60% of voters favored the vaccine mandate, but a third was staunchly opposed. Exactly what you said. And when you look by political affiliation, support, whether for the mandate aimed at the federal workers or the one for businesses with over 100 employees that we discussed in our last episode, over 80% of Democrats are supportive, slightly more than 60% of independents are supportive, but only 30% of Republicans, again, confirming the magnitude of the political divide that you referenced. As you might guess, support was highest overall in urban areas and lowest in rural ones. Of interest, however, support in suburban areas was almost as high as in the urban ones, and that could have significant impact on next year's midterm election. Finally, the support for these mandates was equally strong among those over the age of 65 and those under the age of 30, although less so for those in the middle, the people most impacted by the mandates. Ironically, in a Harris poll, 68% of people who were vaccinated worried about contracting the virus and passing it on to others, while only 44% of the unvaccinated expressed concern about coming down with COVID-19. And the vaccinated group was more concerned about dying from the virus than people in the unvaccinated cohort. The scientific data, of course, tell the opposite story. According to the CDC, for the unvaccinated, their infection rate is five times higher than for vaccinated individuals. Hospitalization rate, 10 times higher. And the chances of dying 11 times higher if you're not vaccinated than if you are. The difference between perception and science is becoming increasingly problematic for our nation. If we're going to put this pandemic behind us, we're gonna to have to align politics and science. Robbie, the most common questions we continue to receive are from parents about the latest developments when it comes to COVID-19 and kids. What's new this week? Jeremy, according to the CDC, COVID-19 hospitalization for children and adolescents has soared with five-fold increase from late June to mid-August. And the reason is the Delta variant impacting kids under 12 who aren't eligible for the vaccine and teenagers whose vaccination rate is under 50%. And similar to adults, the researchers found that among adolescents, the hospitalization rate was 10 times higher for unvaccinated kids than vaccinated ones. Scientists in Israel found similar transmissibility rates in young kids under the age of nine. They calculated that the Delta strain is twice as infectious as the original coronavirus, but noted that the severity of disease produced was similar between the original virus, and this current strain. This difference in transmissibility versus lethality in next generation strains is what we discussed on this podcast a year ago. For a prevalence perspective, a virus that is more transmissible has a competitive advantage over other variants, but higher mortality rates amongst its victims wouldn't be useful when it comes to creating viral dominance and it could be negative for the virus if it takes people's lives early in the clinical course. However, that doesn't mean that by chance, a more transmissible virulent virus couldn't also be created. And that would be a double whammy as it would spread fast and inflict 
major damage, killing a growing percentage of the population. As such, the Israeli researchers concluded that their findings, and quote, highlighted the importance of making COVID-19 vaccines available for young children. And to that end, Pfizer has submitted data to the FDA demonstrating that its vaccine is safe and effective in kids age five to 11. They used a dose approximately one third as large as for adults, but the immunity created was equally strong. More specifically, young children given two doses had similar antibody responses as even young adults aged 16 to 25, and Pfizer is seeking emergency authorization for this younger group age five to 11. Robbie, another listener wondered about whether the $200 a month penalty that we discussed in our last episode that Delta Airlines was imposing on its unvaccinated workers was making any sort of difference. Jeremy, as a teacher at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, I find the impact of incentives interesting, both the positive and negative ones, and how they influence people's behaviors particularly now when it comes to vaccination. You remember that quite a number of municipalities began to offer the chance to win big lottery type dollars if they came in for a vaccination. And overall, the positive impact on the vaccination rates was relatively small. In contrast, the Delta penalty has had a huge impact, even though it won't take effect until November the 1st. Within two weeks of the announcement, 20% of unvaccinated workers had chosen to receive their first dose. The data align with what behavioral economists tell us. When something is theoretical, like possibly winning a lottery, even if it involves a large amount of money, people's resistance stays high. But when the penalty feels immediate and will definitely cost the individual $2,400 a year, it changes behavior. Robbie, the issue of vaccines has seemed to have reached a boiling point. I'm hearing about fights, marriages and friendships ending, uh, and a lot of stories like this. How common actually is this? Jeremy, the answer is far more common than I would have predicted. In a survey done by one poll, one in seven Americans report ending a friendship due to a difference of views about receiving a COVID-19 vaccine. Not only did one in seven friendships end over this question of vaccination, but another one in six people ended their relationships due to political differences. Surprisingly, in the same survey, not only did 57% of Republicans feel that society was too critical of unvaccinated people, but also 41% of Democrats felt the same way, and yet this divide grows. I've always thought that if two people with different views on an issue, could just sit down and begin to look together at the facts that they would quickly find common ground. But somehow this doesn't happen when it comes to vaccination against COVID-19. When I look at the data, it's clear. The vaccine prevents hospitalization and deaths, and the number of people with complications from the vaccine is small. And this information doesn't come from one study or one country, but dozens. If the data were contradictory or preliminary, or if it all came from one government agency, then I can understand the concerns and suspicion. There has to be something I'm missing, but at least so far, I can't figure out what that would be. And again, uniting the country to me will be a crucial step 
towards ending this pandemic. Robbie, my sense is that the FDA scientific hearing on the booster shot for the Pfizer vaccine was extremely contentious. I've heard there was even resignations over this. What happened? Jeremy, there's a lot more to the story that at first glance meets the eye. The meeting seemed to put the scientific community and the president on different sides of the booster issue. But when you look deeper, to a large extent, it didn't. On one hand, the committee didn't support the idea of offering booster shots to all people at this time, as the president had talked about and planned to do. But as we discussed earlier, it did unanimously recommend booster shots for people over the age of 65 and for individuals at risk for severe illness, meaning an underlying chronic disease. And as we said, it did recommend an additional shot for people with higher exposure to the virus, such as healthcare workers, and opened the door to a variety of frontline employees, including grocery store workers and teachers to be vaccinated with the booster as well. By the time you factor in all these groups, I realize that many of the people not included, such as teenagers, wouldn't be far enough out from their second dose to even qualify if they were included, you can see that the recommendations weren't as different in practice as they might have seemed in theory. And now with the CDC's director supporting them, the gap becomes smaller. The CDC scientific committee's recommendations, however, would have been far different than what the president announced. The disagreements weren't over whether the vaccines work or whether the immunity they produce wanes over time. Everyone agrees they do work and that protection does diminish slowly starting six to eight months after the second shot. The contentious nature of the debate focuses on whether the criteria for vaccine administration should be based on the chances of contracting the virus or whether it should be based on the likelihood of developing severe disease and dying. The criteria for administration is reducing hospitalizations and diminishing deaths among vaccinated individuals. Younger individuals are relatively safe and therefore they might not be included. If the criteria is instead preventing infections and limiting the spread to the unvaccinated part of the population, then boosting everyone's immunity makes sense. Those opposed to a third shot for younger individuals believe we should focus on getting the unvaccinated their first dose. Those favoring a more liberal set of criteria believe we should do everything possible to diminish the total number of cases, whether they're severe or mild. The science is clear. What to do about it remains contentious. In a related study, Participants who received a second Johnson & Johnson shot had a 94% protection against COVID-19, equivalent to the results after two Pfizer or Moderna shots. This is something the people who received the J&J &J vaccine have been very interested in, and now the data demonstrates the efficacy of that second shot. As such, the lower efficacy of the J&J &J vaccine that had initially been reported when it was compared to the other two approved vaccines, may simply have been an artifact of the study design and not a true reflection of differences in the immunity created by the vaccines themselves. It may just be that two shots of any vaccine is more effective than one. Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this week? 
Jeremy, it's hard in the face of the huge number of patients needing hospitalization and dying to talk about good news. But we continue to see success when it comes to vaccines. There's the continued effectiveness against the new strains and evidence that the vaccine is safe in kids down to the age of five. In a more lighthearted vein, vaccination is becoming a growing expectation among players in the NFL. And hopefully that will translate into a broader acceptance by fans. When the league looked at what it would do, should teams be unable to compete due to an excess number of players ill with COVID-19, it decided that this year it would use a different approach than last year. Last year, the games were postponed. This year, they will forfeit, which is a stiff penalty to sport where playoff spots are often decided by a single victory. The vaccination rates in the NFL since then have been amazing. On July 7th, at the start of training camp, only 68% of the league's 2,000-plus players were vaccinated. Now it's 93.5%, with teams like last year's Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Atlanta Falcons being 100% vaccinated. Of course, there's still a few players preferring to take the risk. It will be interesting to observe the reaction of their teammates if games end up being canceled and those players who are vaccinated end up having to forfeit their salary for the week as a result of something a teammate did. Robbie, we continue to hear from listeners that they enjoy our efforts to expand the material on this podcast beyond COVID-19 and the coronavirus. What's the big story this week? Jeremy, there are a couple of interesting stories this week. The first was a poll from a group called United States of Care. According to the survey, seven in 10 voters, regardless of their political, demographic, or geographic background, put cost of medical care as their greatest concern. And that was true for insurance costs, co-payments, or drugs. As an example, 90% of Democrats and 86% of Republicans polled favored the government having the power to negotiate drug prices. I predict in the post-pandemic world, with federal subsidies diminishing, that these concerns will increase rather than abating, and that healthcare costs will be a major issue in the 2022 midterm elections. A second equally concerning healthcare topic in the news was a report from the CDC on how much weight kids had gained during the pandemic. The study looked at 430,000 children and adolescents ages 2 to 19. Overall, 22% of kids and teens were obese, up from 19% a year earlier. Among children with an average body mass index, the weight gain was 12 pounds compared to only 6.5 pounds in a typical year. And among the kids with severe obesity, the weight gain was 14.6 pounds rather than 8.8 pounds in the past. The researchers blamed a lack of healthy meals and reduced physical activity for this growing problem. Finally, in another healthcare-related topic, multiple insurers who have been waiving out-of-pocket costs relative to COVID have now decided that they'll be reinstating copays and deductibles, and that would include for testing. If someone gets sick and needs ED and hospital care, it could bankrupt their family. It's another reason for everyone to become vaccinated. Jeremy, you're an historian and well familiar with each of our nation's presidents. If you could pick one or two individuals from the past, 
Who do you think would be best to lead our nation in the battle against COVID-19 today and why? Robbie, on this one, for me, there's an easy number one, but number two was a bit harder to pick. Uh, when you first suggested the question to me, I put quite a bit of thought into it. And for the number two spot, it was a tough decision between Eisenhower, Teddy Roosevelt, Polk, and a couple others. For the number two position, I ended up going with FDR. FDR was brilliant in crisis management. He led the country out of the Depression and through World War II. He reassured a scared nation famously when he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself on one of his fireside chats during the Depression. I think if FDR was in charge right now, he would be disgusted with the press and consistently calling them out for how they use fear and division to get ratings. FDR famously despised many in the press and was well known for his hatred of the Chicago Tribune. In one of those famous fireside chats, he condemned some of the press as bogus patriots who use the sacred freedom of the press to echo the sentiments of the propagandists in Tokyo and Berlin, and thought of any publisher who knowingly published falsehoods as an enemy of the state. FDR inspired confidence in people when we were going through two major crises and focused on bringing people together when discussing the Depression, and he told the public that he would, quote, wage a war against the enemy as though we were, in fact, invaded by a foreign foe. He actively fought against those who were profiting from people struggling during the Depression, and he did everything in his power to get more jobs for the American people and lead them through two of the worst crises in American history. I think if FDR was president today, he would use his famous fireside chats to keep the nation informed and inspire calm instead of fear. He would inspire unity instead of division, and he would do everything he could to keep the economy as strong as possible while doing what needed to be done to get us through the pandemic. For the number one position on who would be the best president to bring us through the pandemic is pretty easy. In my humble opinion, Abraham Lincoln is hands down the best president we've ever had as a nation, and no president before or since has come close to his level of brilliance, greatness, and leadership ability. One of the most brilliant things Lincoln did that no president has done even remotely to the same degree before or since was to fill his cabinet of people who completely disagreed with him and who would do so openly. He was smart enough to realize that a bunch of yes-men in office would be terrible for the nation and wanted to hear as many points of view as possible. He created a culture where they were encouraged to openly disagree with him or call him out when they thought he was going to make a mistake. He also knew when to stop listening so he could make an act on his final decisions. Lincoln was extremely self-aware to an almost uncanny degree. He was quick to realize a mistake, acknowledge it, learn from it, and move on. He was also quick to learn new information and adjust strategy accordingly. He was keenly aware of his own weaknesses and surrounded himself with people who could help him make up for those weaknesses. He knew he had a temper, but was always kind to those he worked with. When he did get angry, he would write what he called a hot letter, where he would sit down and write an angry letter to someone in the heat of the moment to vent out his frustrations, but never send the letter. If he did have an outburst at someone, he would follow it up with a kind gesture, and he was extremely well known for not holding grudges. Lincoln always shared in his success and also never failed to hold himself accountable. Lincoln was always willing to share in the blame and quick to point the finger at himself. Lincoln was famous for connecting with people. He would always go out and shake hands and talk to the members of the public in the Union Army and visit troops in the hospitals. Lincoln had an ability to communicate with the American public in a way that is second to none in American history. He was a brilliant speaker who made his vision and goals easy to understand and believe in. Lincoln led the nation through the worst crisis it ever faced in the American Civil War and in slavery and kept the nation whole. If Lincoln was president today, I think the pandemic would have been handled much better than it has. I don't mean this is an attack on Trump or Biden, but Lincoln was just special in his brilliance. Lincoln would have made up his cabinet of people that disagree with each other as much as Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders do, but listen to everything they have to say. He would have publicly acknowledged and taken blame for any time he had made a mistake. 
Anytime we had new data, Lincoln would have quickly changed the strategy appropriately and been able to clearly communicate with the public why the strategy was changing. He would have provided the nation with specific goals around the pandemic, specific metrics and deadlines for reaching the goals, and celebrated the success in meeting them. Lincoln would have done his absolute best to keep everyone in the nation on the same page. Lincoln would have frequently talked to frontline healthcare workers, people suffering from COVID, or those who have lost family members to it, along with concerned members of the public. He would have connected with them and let them know he was listening and was truly with them. I know a lot of people thought Donald Trump was tough on the press, often calling them fake news, but he doesn't even come close to the level of Lincoln in this regard. Lincoln actually went against the Bill of Rights by suspending the freedom of the press and shut down many newspapers for printing what he considered to be sowing division or treasonous. Many scholars to this day debate whether that was the right thing to do, even in the middle of the Civil War. And I have to wonder how he would have handled the modern press, misinformation, scare tactics, and the division it creates. I would not trust this way of handling the press from any other president than Lincoln, though. The one thing I do know is that Lincoln is the best president in terms of crisis management we ever had, and it's not even close. I strongly believe that if Lincoln was around to be elected the 45th president and reelected in 2020, our nation would have been a much different place in terms of both the pandemic and the economy. There is no president I would rather have lead us through this crisis or any other than the best president our nation has ever had in Abraham Lincoln. Robbie, on one hand, there is so much our nation is doing relative to COVID-19, and on the other hand, little progress seems to be happening, and everyone across the board seems to be getting frustrated at one thing or another. Why? Jeremy, you're right to worry about the ongoing problems relative to COVID, despite the efforts that are being expended. And for a growing number of Americans, it's very frustrating and exhausting. I think there are three reasons we are experiencing what often is called the Red Queen problem. The term comes from something the Red Queen tells Alice in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. She says, now here you see, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. And that's where our nation seems to be today when it comes to COVID. The first explanation for what is happening and the most optimistic for the future is that the perception of futility is simply a reflection of the exponential growth curve of COVID-19 transmission. Think of it this way. If one person transmits the virus to three others, and that spread is slowed in half, which would be a tremendous progress. It still means that a month from now, there'll be more cases than today. And that makes it appear that our efforts have been futile, when in truth, they have been very successful. The good news is that when enough people have been vaccinated, such that 10 individuals with COVID only infect eight or nine rather than 15 or 20, the virus will start to disappear on its own and the progress we have made will be easily seen. You can think of it as a kitchen sink with a small drain. If water is being added at twice the rate that the drain allows, the water will quickly overflow the sink. Even as the inflow is reduced, the water will still continue to overflow until at some point the water coming in the rate of the water coming in at least, drops below that draining out. Suddenly, no more water overflows, and we see the water level in the sink itself dropping. That is what we describe as herd immunity, if you apply the metaphor 
to COVID. The second reason we fail to perceive progress is that we confuse activities like mask wearing and social distancing with ending the pandemic. What they do do is slow the spread, but as soon as we take the covering off and get together with people indoors, the infection rate rises. Psychologically, people think, I've been masking for over a year. Why isn't it working? In practice, it has worked. But unlike with vaccines, the protection offered ends as soon as the social distancing goes away. And finally, there's the virus itself. The Red Queen metaphor comes from evolutionary biology. Scientists pointed out that every species must get stronger just to maintain its relative position in the ecosystem, since all other species will be evolving. The current Delta variant is twice as transmissible as the original one. If half of the population hadn't been vaccinated, the problems of today wouldn't be twice as bad, but far worse due to the exponential rate of spread. The reality is that we have made huge progress thanks to the vaccine, but the coronavirus has made progress as well. The human mind struggles to recognize what would have been, and it's hard to be grateful for how much better things are than they otherwise would have been. Instead of celebrating the success, we feel as frustrated as the Red Queen. It's disappointing to run as fast as you can for close to 18 months and find yourself seemingly in the same place. There's only one way to race ahead, and that's reaching the 90% vaccination rate needed for herd immunity. Until then, we're likely to see continued waves of infection and growing coronavirus fatigue. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the hosts, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.